rather rudely uh, by the maitre d' and they're told to go wait at the bar and see if a table opens up and they come through and they're asking if there's a couple, a party of two for the triple horns, which is not them, but Steve Carell's like, yeah, that's us. And so they take the reservation, but what they don't realize is they, by taking the reservation, they put themselves in the middle of a mess that they could have never anticipated, caught between people at fighting with one another. And what makes the movie so funny is the realization by us, the crowd watching the movie, and the characters, primarily uh, Tina Fey and Steve Carell's characters, you realize how far in over their heads they really are. And they routinely do really dumb things that show their own incompetence in the crime world. And yet, because it's a movie, they are successful in evading those more experienced. And in a movie, when we see people in over their heads, it often creates humor as we watch the characters fumble around trying to make sense of the situations that they find themselves in. And perhaps you've experienced that where you've signed up for something or you've agreed to something and you didn't fully understand all that was going to be required of you on the front end. And it doesn't take you long to realize I have got myself way in over my head. But what is not funny but can be really dangerous and deadly is when we see Christians get in over their heads because they've not taken the time to understand and weigh the cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And if we're honest, this shouldn't be the case because we have the scriptures, which is where God in his grace lays out for us what it means to be in his family, to be a disciple of Jesus, and to be sent on Mission. And so today in Mark 6, 1 through 30, Mark tells us with ever increasing clarity what it means to be an insider, a disciple who was sent on mission by Jesus. The goal is to have those of us who are disciples living with an intentional urgency as we understand the call of discipleship. The goal is for us to no longer be fumbling around, wasting precious time because we've allowed ourselves to get in over our heads. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful that you've called us to a life of service and a life of discipleship. And we're really grateful that that call and that commission didn't come without instructions. You've given us your word where we can read and see and understand what it is to be a follower of you, Jesus. And so as we look at your word, as your spirit works in each of our hearts and in each of our lives, would we desire, would we show growth in what it means to be a disciple? Will we look around and sometimes be aware that we're not fully understanding what's going on, but will we never look around and go, we've neglected your word for so long, we've neglected prayer for so long, that we find ourselves in over our heads? But will we love your word? Will we treasure reading your word? Will we treasure prayer? Will we treasure sharing your word? to help secure us, to give us a firm anchor in a world that is often tossed here and there by sin. In Christ's name, amen. This is what we read in John 6, 1 through 30. He, meaning Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? 
and they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on, a tu- not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. We already prayed. So how about we just start? I got real, I read for so long, I got confused on what we hadn't hadn't done. I was like, well, it's never a bad thing. Maybe we should pray again. We're going to look at this in three sections, Mark 1 through 6, Mark 7 through 13, and then Mark 14 through 30. And so I'm not going to reread those, but we're going to go back and kind of unpack what's going on, starting in Mark 6, 1 through 6. If you want to pray on your own, you can. Um, Jesus and his disciples leave Capernaum, which is where they got off the boat. And Jesus had to run in with Jairus and with the woman who had the issue of blood. And they head back to Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And on the Sabbath in Nazareth, Jesus and his disciples make their way to the synagogue, which was their custom, and Jesus teaches in the synagogue again. And afterwards, Jesus is met with a host of questions by those in attendance. And those questions do not deny the wisdom of his words or the power of his works, but they do question where Jesus got them from. Nazareth was a small town. How many of you grew up in a small town? 
Nazareth was 500 people probably maximum. And in a small town where everyone depends on everyone else for, I mean, a city that, a town that small then is like living a real life game of settlers. Like you're dependent on other people for sheep, you're dependent on some people for wheat. Like everything is interconnected. So everyone knew everyone else. And so the questions stem from the fact that they know that Jesus' formal training under his dad, Joseph, was to be a carpenter. That Jesus didn't receive training to be a rabbi. And so where did the wisdom of his words come from? Where did the power of his works come from if he was trained to be a carpenter? And they know that none of his brothers and sisters are, to use a turn of phrase that we're familiar with, acting above their raising. They're living and doing exactly what people who were born in their station of life were expected to do. But Jesus doesn't fit that mold or that pattern. And they know he is Mary's son. But the more Jesus does public ministry, the more they question the origins of his birth. And so sometimes when people unpack this and they say that he's referred to as the son of Mary, they want to say it means that Joseph is already dead, but he's going to reference Joseph later, and it appears that Joseph is still alive. And some people say it is a means of an outright slur, calling Jesus an illegitimate son, that they know for certain who his mother was, but they're still not sure who the dad of Jesus really is. But what this stems from is the people looking and going, we, we know you, and we know whose you are, and we can't make sense of what we're seeing. All of these questions flow from the ancient worldview that where you were born geographically and who your parents and family or your family of origin were determined your lot in life. Ben Witherington in his commentary explains, More than just a matter of familiarity breeding contempt, this comes from the ancient mentality that geographical and hereditary origins determine who a person is and what his capacities will always be. They see Jesus as someone who is not merely exceeding expectations, but rather is overreaching. And so they view Jesus with hostility. They begin to shun Jesus because they don't go, well, this is a guy who got a chance and took full advantage of it. They go, this guy just doesn't know when enough is enough. And so rather than continue to engage in a faithful dialogue with Jesus, even to display imperfect faith like the woman with the issue of blood who touched the edge of Jesus' garment, Mark tells us that they took offense at him. And this leads Jesus to say, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Notice how Jesus draws ever smaller concentric circles around where dishonor comes from. Hometowns being the biggest, everyone that was vaguely aware of who he is has started to take offense at him. And that maybe would be understandable, but there are also the relatives of Jesus, his cousins and his aunts and his uncles, who have begun to disown and reject Jesus. And then there is his immediate family who disowns and dishonors Jesus. Now imagine the pain that Jesus in his full humanity felt at this rejection. This is where we have to look at Jesus and see him not only as fully God, but as someone who is fully man. 
Because we need to see and understand that he knows the pain of rejection from a hometown, from relatives, even from immediate family as he is living on mission to do the will of the Father. Because when we feel that personally, when we feel rejected by our own hometown, when we feel ostracized by our relatives and perhaps even disowned or dishonored by our own immediate family, that is a pain and a frustration and a feeling we can take to Jesus who can sympathize with us in that moment. And so we go to Jesus in those moments when we feel that same rejection, knowing that he can identify with us. Not only that, but the lack of faith closes the door on many mighty works being done outside of a few folks being made well. This hard-heartedness causes Jesus this time, not those listening, usually those listening marvel at Jesus' teaching and wisdom and authority, but this time because of the hard-heartedness, Jesus marvels at the lack of belief among those from his hometown. But Jesus and his disciples are undeterred. They don't throw up their hands and go, well, if we can't gain traction in Nazareth, what's the point in keeping going? They just go, all right, our work here's done. And they continue to move around the region, going into different villages, teaching and sharing the good news of the kingdom. And this, I believe, highlights one of the costs of discipleship. And it is the rejection by us of those closest to us. And that sounded really confusing. One of the costs of discipleship that we will face at some point in life is being rejected by those who are often closest to us. Ben Witherington again provides helpful insight when he says this. The problem with hometown folks is that they know both too much and too little about a person. What they know has to do with their memories of what a person was like while growing up and becoming an adult. Once one has left town and gone elsewhere, they know little about what is or is not true about the person over that period of time. Therefore, they continue to evaluate the person on the basis of old information. And maybe you've experienced part of that in your life. Maybe you became a believer after leaving home. Maybe it was in college. Maybe it's been in the past three years. Maybe it was as you got ready to leave home or you got really serious about your faith after you left the home and the town and the people that you grew up around. And you come back from college. You come back from a mission trip. You come back having experienced all this growth and you start to talk about it. And you want it to be met with excitement and you want it to be met with encouragement. And people give you the cold shoulder. They say things like, oh, well, you're just too good now. Or, oh, you must be perfect. Or, oh, it must be nice to... However that gets phrased to us, I think we often feel what Ben Witherington talks about. In that we go and we grow in Christ often apart from where we grew up. And when we go back, all of our life and all of our growth is not based off of what's happened in the interim. It's based off of how people knew us before we left. And they continue to struggle to understand who we are and how we've grown in Christ. And it can often lead to uncomfortable conversations. It can lead to misunderstanding. And it can sometimes, at the worst case scenario, begin to cause a split or a rift in family relationships especially. And Jesus wants us to know that he 
understands that about life and he understands it's a cost of following him. And if and when we feel those pushbacks and those rejections and those isolating moments, we are to come to him confessing those things. But here's what we're not to do. What does Jesus not do? Jesus does not apologize for who he is. And I think often in our attempt to smooth over those interpersonal relational conflicts, we will begin to apologize for the work that God has done in our life as a means to ease that tension, as a means to see that relationship restored. We are to deal with those around us in grace and truth and love. But we are never to apologize for the work that God is doing in and through us as if God is somehow making a mistake by growing us. We are to honestly confess our inability to do anything on our own outside of the grace of God growing us and developing us. But we often downplay the work of God in our life in order to appease people and ease interpersonal conflict when Jesus never did that. The model of Jesus for us is not to apologize for who we are and how he's growing us. It's to honestly confess how it is that the Lord's working in our life and then deal with the aftermath of that, however is most conducive to maintaining relationships and earning the ability to share the gospel with people. And then we go on in Mark 6, 7 through 13, and Jesus calls the twelve to him, and he begins to send them out two by two. And they are sent out on mission with Jesus bestowing his authority over unclean spirits on them. So it is for the disciples then and for every disciple since then. When we are sent, we are sent with strength, power, and authority that are all given to us as a means of grace by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. None of what we experience, no strength, grace, mercy, power, nothing of the Christian life that we experience is a matter of us drumming it up for ourselves. It's all a matter of God in grace giving it to us. The disciples are a bunch of fumbling fools by this point in Mark's gospel. They are not painted in a favorable light. And this little brief section in Mark 6, 1 through 30 is the only time in all of Mark's gospel that the disciples are actually painted in a favorable light. But Jesus still bestows on them the authority over unclean spirits. And he still commissions them and sends them out. And that should give us great comfort and great joy tonight. That if Jesus can use men like the disciples and with no hesitation and with no reservation bestow authority on them to go out and do the mission that he's assigned them to, he's going to do the same in each of our life. In all of our lives, Jesus is going to work to give that authority and that power and that strength to us to do the work that he's called us to. And Jesus is also very clear about what physical possessions they are to take with them. I would not invite Jesus to help my family pack for a vacation because he gives very strict instructions on what you are to take, and it is a very small packing list. This is the packing list you need if you're flying Spirit Airlines, so you don't get charged $900 for a carry-on. Jesus says you take a belt, you take sandals, both of them please, a tunic, and a staff. Now, why only these four things? Why would Jesus limit the list to what seems like you would kind of know that that's what you needed? Like, 
You need shoes on your feet. You need something to cover your body. You need something to help hold that to your body. And you need something to help walk and maybe fend off wild animals with when you're between towns. Jesus narrows it down to these four items because, as we've talked about throughout, Jesus is leading us in a new exodus. And these four items harken back to the first exodus. In Exodus 12, 11, when Moses gives directions concerning the first Passover, he says this, In this manner shall you eat it, with your belt fastened, which means you have your tunic on, with sandals on your feet, and with your staff in your hand. Jesus gives them those four things to take to pull everyone who would hear this story's attention back to the first exodus and say, I'm leading you on a new and better exodus. And so the disciples are to travel light with a full trust and confidence in God's provision for them. The mission is too urgent for the disciples to be bound by material concerns. And Jesus then goes on to say that they are to stay with those who welcome them. They are to be grateful recipients of others' hospitality. That's why he says, when you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Meaning the first person that welcomes you, you go there and you stay there. Whether it's the nicest house in the village or the worst house in the village. You go and you are grateful recipients of the hospitality that is offered you. You don't bounce around always looking for what's best next. You go and you trust that whoever greets you, I've sent to you to help meet your needs while you're in that city or that village doing ministry. They are to trust in God's ability to provide food and shelter through humans, through human means, and to honor God's provision for them by staying put. However, if they enter a town and nobody will receive them, they are going to be rejected like Jesus in Nazareth. And then Jesus gives them very specific directions on what they are to do. They are to shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against that village or that town. This is, again, very specific and direct, and it's tied to life in the first century in Palestine. Because when the Jews would leave the land of Israel, and they would go out into Gentile land, when they would go outside of the holy promised land of God's people, When they got back, they would shake the dust off of their clothes as a means of purifying themselves. And so for Jesus to say, if you're in a a village in Israel and they won't receive you, you are to shake the dust off of your clothes as a sign against them, is Jesus saying there are villages and towns even in Israel that are unclean, that are heathen that are not about the things of God. This is also why they were sent out in pairs outside of the mutual support and encouragement a partner would provide. It is because the law demanded two witnesses to bring a valid charge according to Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so not only do they go out in pairs for the mutual benefit and encouragement of one another, but if you are going to shake the dust off your feet, if you are going to condemn or bring a charge against an entire village or town, there has to be someone with you to make that charge valid. And so Jesus sends them out in pairs, and if they shake the dust off of their feet, 
then it becomes a valid charge of their hard-heartedness, of their stubbornness, of their being outside of the people of God. And if Jesus authorizes the disciples to label those inside the land of Israel as Gentiles, then according to James Edwards, it eliminates the presumption of salvation on the basis of ethnicity, nation, or race. For the disciples to declare land in Israel as Gentile land means that all of a sudden everything they have banked on to be counted, God's people, their ethnicity and their nation and their race are no longer valid for claiming right standing before God. The way of the new exodus and being part of the new Israel is solely based on how one responds to the message of Jesus. And here we see another cost of discipleship, and it's this. Mainly, will we follow Jesus in full trust that he will provide for us, and will we keep going without the guarantee of success? And are we positioning our lives to be able to answer the call of Jesus when it comes? The disciples have spent some time with Jesus now. And they have freed up their life. They've left their business, their fishing business behind. They are full in on the mission of God. And they are able to respond to God's, to Jesus' calling them to himself and then sending them out. They are able to go because they are living light. They have positioned their entire life around Jesus and his teaching and being able to be obedient in a moment's notice. And so we have to ask ourselves as we count the cost of what it means to be a follower? Will we trust that Jesus will provide for us exactly what we need to do the work that he's called us to do? Not, will Jesus provide everything I need to live a comfortable lifestyle that keeps me insulated from suffering and sacrifice for the mission of God? And will we keep going even if we're not met with immediate success? Notice Jesus doesn't say, when you go, it's going to be just butterflies and rainbows. Everybody's going to be ready to respond. Jesus sends them out well aware that they may be met with rejection and with failure. James Edwards, in his commentary, sums it up well when he says, True service of Jesus is characterized by dependence on Jesus, and dependence on Jesus is signified by going where Jesus sends, despite material shortfalls and unanswered questions. A genuine call to ministry always calls us to that for which we are not adequately prepared. It is only in awareness of such that the Christian experiences the presence and promise of Jesus Christ and learns to depend not on human capabilities, but on the one who calls and in the power of the proclamation to authenticate itself. And so as we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we ask ourselves, am I putting my family in a position? Am I raising my children? Am I preparing for my future family at some point down the road to be able to live in a way where we can respond to the urgency and the call of Jesus on our lives to go wherever he may have us go? Or am I building my life where it would be very hard to respond to Jesus' call to go because I'm so ready to stay? And can I go without all of my questions answered? And can I go knowing that I may meet more failure than success? And can I go with a full trust and belief that Jesus 
will provide everything I need every step along the way. And this is the seduction of the times that we live in, where everything is geared around making yourself as safe as possible, ensuring everything, making sure that in, at any point, if you were to experience loss, you can recover that at, at a very uh, quick rate. And so often what I fear is that we hear the gospel, we respond to the gospel, we see the urgency of the gospel in the scriptures, and then that urgency is hit with an e-break when we leave because we've not built our lives really around being faithful to the gospel. We've built our lives outside of our Sunday gatherings and our small group gatherings around ourselves. And Jesus is looking, calling us to himself to send us out on mission and the mission is not to achieve the american dream the mission is to see the gospel advance and so this is not a me stand up here sell everything you know i'm not going to go full david platt on you sell everything you've owned and live in a van down by the river um, and give your life to the gospel that way but what i do think it's a call to wrestle with for us is what are we building our lives for? Are we building our lives to respond to the call? Or are we building our lives around ourselves? That's a cost of a disciple. That's a cost of following Jesus. But luckily, the disciples answered it and out they went. And then we get this kind of Weird interjection in Mark 6, 14 through 30. I mean, if you're reading, if you just, if you just sat down and you had started at Mark 1 at like noon and you were take a couple breaks and you're like just now getting to Mark 6, 14 through 30, it feels so odd that this is where Mark chooses to have a flashback about what's happened to John the Baptist. But if you remember from a few weeks ago, we talked about Mark's, one of Mark's favorite literary techniques is a sandwich, where he tells you a story, interjects a story, and then finishes a story, and it's the middle part, the meat, that kind of interrupts the story that helps you interpret what's going on around it. And so the interjection of what happens to John the Baptist serves as the middle part of a sandwich, where we're going to see the disciples go out at the end of 6.13, and then you're going to hear the story of John the Baptist, and then in 630, you're going to have the disciples return. So John's fate at the hands of Herod serves as an interpretive key for the disciples going out and the disciples coming back in. What we do know is that the work and ministry of Jesus had finally reached the courtyards of Herod Antipas, who rules over Palestine. And Herod is bothered by the news of Jesus' powerful works as he thinks he is perhaps John the Baptist come back from the dead to haunt him while others think that he is perhaps Elijah who was taken up into heaven and never died who's come back, or at the worst case scenario or best case scenario, he's just like another one of the prophets of old. But what led Herod to fear John coming back from the dead? Herod feared John coming back from the dead because he had had him beheaded at the request of his stepdaughter after she danced an erotic and pleasing dance for him in front of his high-powered friend's for his birthday. The whole ordeal is as sordid and salacious 
as it reads. This is the stuff that would give you a long-running drama on like a Thursday night on a cable network TV outlet. This is both jaw-dropping in its disgustingness, and it's also just really, really sad to watch how Herod and Herodias and Salome and these high-powered men of Galilee all move so coldly through life, willing to expend one person for the sake of making life as easy and as enjoyable as possible in the here and now. And so John gets beheaded in prison, and John was in prison and a candidate for beheading because he had roundly and consistently criticized and called Herod and Herodias out on the sinfulness of their relationship as a violation of Leviticus 20, 21, which says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. And it was the prophet John's commitment to the truth that caused Herodias to nurture a deadly grudge against him. John said, hey guys, uh, even if you don't want to abide by all that God says, like common moral sense would say, Herod, if you divorced your wife and you talked your brother's wife into leaving your brother to marry you, you guys are really not in a healthy relationship. Like let's take all the morality, let's take all the law of God out of it. This isn't healthy. And not only that, but now what you see happen as they work to bring John's life to an end is Herodias is so bent on having John put to death that she is willing to use her daughter from her first marriage as a means to accomplish that end. Imagine not liking someone so much that you would go to your own son or daughter and say, I want you to go into that room full of men or women and I want you to dance and give your body out in such a provocative way that they want to give you whatever you ask for in return. Herodias is willing to abuse her daughter to see John dead. But John, throughout his life, whether he was in the wilderness calling people out to him to be baptized or in and near the courts of Herod calling Herod to account for his sinfulness, John was never bought off. John was never silenced by popular opinion. John never looked around and thought, the best thing I can do now is keep silent in order to prolong my life. What John did is what every prophet down through the ages has done. It's what every faithful follower of Christ has done, regardless of who the people are, regardless of their views on the Christian faith, regardless of the power they may hold, what John did is John saw sinfulness, John saw a break in just the basic moral order of the world that God created, and John spoke truth to the sin. And it cost him his life. So why does Mark include this story of John's death right after Jesus sends out the twelve and just before the apostles return to tell Jesus of their success in verse 30? He does so to drive home the truth of the ultimate cost of discipleship. The disciples go out 
and the disciples return. But there's going to be a time in their life where they go out and they don't come back because they're going to meet the same end as John himself met. This is a clear call, a clear warning. If you want in on the miracle-working, wise words of Jesus, you better wrestle with the fact of if you're okay losing your life as his disciple. Mark, in literary mastery, slides this in there, and then he forces us all to go, this, this is the real, true cost. This is what it is to be a follower of Jesus, a follower of God in a fallen and lost world. It is to faithfully, consistently, without compromise, but in grace and truth, tell the truth of who God is and how he's ordered the world to work and call sin, sin, and call people to repentance and be prepared to pay with your life. If John is the greatest man born of woman, Jesus' own words, and he suffers this fate, and if Jesus is fully God and fully man and he suffers the same fate, and if the disciples all to one degree or another outside of John face the same fate, and if we look back through all of church history at all of the different areas and places and times that the blood of the martyrs has served as the fertilizer or the fuel for the growth of the church, then we would be wise to look around and go, it is not beyond Christ to call me to lose my life in the ultimate sense for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. Am I willing to pay the cost? James Edwards in his commentary says this, the sandwich structure draws these things together, mission and martyrdom, discipleship and death into an inseparable relationship. Whoever would follow Jesus must first reckon with the fate of John. John's martyrdom not only prefigures Jesus' death, but it also prefigures the death of anyone who would follow Jesus. And we'll talk about this near the end of Mark 8, where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself, meaning die to self, and follow me. And it's here that we find the greatest cost of discipleship, our very lives. Not only in the final sense of John's life ending or other martyrs down through the age, but in the everyday call to lay our lives down for the sake of the gospel. Will we count this cost and still move forward as disciples? By God's grace and work in our life, the answer will be yes. And so as followers of Jesus, we must live with our eyes wide open to the realities of what it means to be a faithful disciple. To faithfully follow Jesus means that we will often feel the pain of rejection by those closest to us. To faithfully follow Jesus means going out into the world together with other believers to share the gospel with gracious and loving boldness, knowing that it will not always be received by those we share it with. 
To faithfully follow Jesus means that we accept and live in light of the possibility that remaining faithful to Jesus and his kingdom may cost us our lives at the hands of earthly kingdoms. We draw comfort from knowing that we will not walk through any of these experiences alone because we have the Father working out all things according to his sovereign plan. We have Jesus interceding for us and walking with us every step of the way, and we have the Spirit inside of us to comfort and calm us whatever we may face. God does not call us to himself and then shoo us out the door to figure it out on our own. Here's the great comfort for us as believers that even the disciples didn't know then. Even John didn't know then. Everywhere you go, every place God sends you, every relationship God puts you in, every circumstance or situation you face, here's the reality for us as believers. God is fully present as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit at all points, at all places in our life. We don't go at this alone. And on top of that, here's the crazy amount of grace that just flows out of that. He gives us one another. He gives us the church to encourage and push us forward in the mission. This would be a really hard passage to work through if we didn't have the promise of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit being with us every step of the way knowing that the Son has experienced everything He's going to call us to in life, be it the rejection of family and friends, the uncertainty of where shelter and food will come from, the message being rejected, or ultimately losing your life in service of the gospel. There is nothing you will face in life in service and mission to Jesus that He is unable to identify with. And inside you, you have the Spirit of God who Paul says groans and intercedes for us with longings too deep for words. When we don't know what to pray, when we don't know how to pray, when we don't know what's on the other side of tomorrow, the Spirit does. And the Spirit is in us, both working in us and also praying for us in ways that we don't know and understand so that we would be calm, confident followers of Jesus in our everyday life. This is the cost of discipleship. Is the cost great? Yes. Is the call all-consuming on our life? Yes. But we take comfort in knowing that we take every step with the fullness of God present with us. I just want to close with these words, and we're actually going to sing them in just a few minutes. This is what the hymn in Christ alone says. No guilt in life. No fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. And I would add, it is here in the power of Christ that we go on mission. Let's pray.